If you have your Bible with you, please open it to Luke chapter 1. Although we will be focusing in just a minute on the Advent passage that we had talked about beginning in verse 26, we will be kind of tackling almost the whole first chapter of Luke. And so if you have your Bibles, just sort of hold them open to the beginning of the book of Luke. Uh, I am very thankful uh, to be back here. Um, I'm thankful to uh, be back where the snow is bountiful and full, uh, where it looks like Christmas, um, even well before Christmas comes. Uh, I am I'm grateful to be back here. I am grateful that when I'm gone, we have men who are uh, able and capable of filling the pulpit. I was very grateful to have listened to to Pastor Richard in the past and to have listened to him again. And uh, it, it is a good thing that a church has people in it that are capable and willing to preach the word. And, and much more importantly than just somebody who fills the pulpit. We don't have men here who simply fill the pulpit. We have elders who honestly desire to preach and teach the word of God and are very capable of doing that. And I'm very grateful for Pastor Richard for fulfilling that. And I'm, I'm grateful for Pastor Doug um, to seek in his busy, busy life not only to love his family, uh, to care for them, uh, but also to uh, provide for them through work and a job, and then on top of all that, uh, to further his education as well so that he might be better prepared to handle the Word of God. Uh, that is a, a gift that we have, that we have an elder who does that as well. Um, I'm very grateful also for you um, for the past year, uh, and then plus, uh, whether you know it or not, you have had a split allegiance from me as I've been working on finishing up all the stuff that I had to do, and uh, now it is done and behind us, and so we can uh, go sort of full-throated, full-throttle through the rest of of our course together, which hopefully will be many, many years. Uh, I I pray for that, and um, I am very grateful that you have given me the opportunity and the chance to, to finish both of those things. Uh, you've been very gracious, even if you don't realize it. Uh, you have been gracious to me, and I, I am very happy uh, to know that I have a church that has allowed me to accomplish those things. It's fitting, then, that we come to the Advent today where we get to talk about joy. Uh, I am very joyous and in not only our elders and, and uh, the response that they have had to uh, my being gone or to the difficulties of, of the past year and working through the rest of my dissertation, but more importantly to the church, I am joyous. We talk about joy today. I get to experience that firsthand. That is a, a very good thing by God. This is a season of joy. It's written on all things when it comes to Christmas. You have joy flopped here and there and everywhere else. Joy is a part of the Christmas season. This doesn't mean, though, that we are unaware of the difficulties that come with this season as well. Even though our songs, our readings, our thoughts are all focused on joy, we talk about the goodness of glad tidings and and the gospel and and joyous reception of these things from angels, we realize that there are still struggles. There are failures. People will fail in their businesses. They will fail in their finances. They're, they fail because they buy extravagant gifts that they can't afford. They feel like failures because they can't afford to buy extravagant gifts. They struggle with their careers, especially at the end of the year when you think back over what has happened. Many of you struggle in education. If you're a student, you, you understand that The end of the year also indicates end of terms and exams. There are struggles with sin, with family. It it becomes even more heightened during this time of year when you should get along with everyone and you don't. Sometimes it's simply a reminder that you are sinful and that you haven't completed your fight with that. 
Sometimes it's simply a struggle with faith. There are always struggles this time of year. So when we talk about joy and this being a joyous time of year, that doesn't mean that it's an automatic switch that we get to flip, that when the month of December comes, we get to be joyous and we can leave all of those cares behind. It's also not just an imperative that you have to be joyous, that somehow you have to drum up in yourself joy and happiness and goodness and pleasure. I was reminded of the difficulty that we face in talking about joy and in talking about the fact that simply saying that this is a season of joy seems to imply that there is a lack of joy in other seasons. When we talk about the fact that this is a season of joy, what are the rest of the seasons? Seasons of despair? Uh, we, we need to have a way of talking about these things as Christians. I was given a book recently by my, my wife. I, I love to interact with movies and to think through movies and music and things like that from a Christian perspective. And she gave me a book uh, that, that was written from a, a Christian's perspective on movies, and I really appreciated it. Um, and she had bought it used, but it was supposed to be used near perfect, right? So no markings or anything. The book was supposed to be perfect. And she opened it up, and it was not near perfect. Whoever had owned it before had chalked that thing up. And I don't mean like little pencil underlinings. He wrote theses in the margins, right? And so this guy had written everywhere in the book, and it wasn't just like on two pages, and then he quit. It's just continually through the book, um, which she wasn't expecting and she didn't really care for, but it's turned into quite a nice thing for me because I get to read the book and then I have a discussion partner with me, sort of in, in real time. And, and he is not coming from my perspective. He is clearly, uh, if he is a Christian, he is coming from a, a spectrum far more liberal than me. And so when I get to hear, I read the same things that he reads and then I respond not only to what I've read, but I get to respond to him. And it's, it's a very interesting read. It actually makes the book more interesting. And book passage was talking about the saving of the world in movies and how the world is often saved by things. And he was talking specifically here about the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. And he, he talked about an interview that he did with Sir Ian McKellen, who is the um, who plays Gandalf in, in the movies, and who is a very liberal man. He's a gay man, and he, he came back and he talked about the fact that he didn't think that Lord of the Rings had anything really to do with religion, um, but that it was a book about a fellowship of people coming together, humanity coming together to defeat evil. And, and he responds by saying he just thought that this was a very, a very sort of limited way of reading the Lord of the Rings. And he talks about the fact that uh, Sir Ian McKellen picked up on the Shire being this place without a religion. He says things like, there's no church in Hobbiton. There's no church in, in all these places, and yet they still seem to function. And the writer of the book, the author, writes this. The Shire had no church, but this speaks more to its failure than to its strengths. Ultimately, it is the intervention of a higher power that saves Middle-earth from destruction. So, by the way, if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, everything works out. Um... <laughs> Neither here nor there. Any suggestion that the Lord of the Rings demonstrates a human capacity to withstand and vanquish evil reflects an incomplete interpretation, especially in view of the story's climatic events. So I read that and I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't go any deeper into it, which was a bummer. He, he, he really should have dug into that, but he didn't. And, and so then I read in the margin what this man replies. He says, if... As he, the author, suggests, some higher power is the way in which evil is vanquished, then that higher power has been absent in all of human history. Which again, 
is a thesis, right? So this guy isn't just like underlining things with a question mark. He's, he's making sure that his thoughts are well known, like he, was, he knew he was passing this book along to somebody. That's a good question, right? This is what we say. This is an age-old problem. God is good, is what the author is saying. God is vanquishing evil. He is working through humans, but at the same time, it is his working in humans that allows evil to be vanquished. And specifically, it is his work outside of movies in Jesus Christ that actually does away with evil and brings joy and peace. But if the ending of evil is accomplished in Christ, then why has he allowed that evil to happen? That's what this man is asking. If evil is vanquished through God's intervening, then why hasn't God intervened? Because evil is still here. Taken specifically to joy, the question becomes, why don't we have it? Why is there a season where we're told that joy has now come? Why is this something that doesn't fill our lives? Why doesn't God simply overflow us with his presence and joy at all times? Why doesn't he do away with evil? Why doesn't he do away with all of the, the horrible things that bring us grief and misery in our lives? Christians have long, long recognized this. We sing it even in our songs, although our songs are filled with joy this time of year. We realize that our songs are also filled with Passages that speak of the lack of joy, that the apparent confession of joy does not meet what our lives actually live. The song, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, is one of these. It came upon a midnight clear, that glorious song of old, from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on the earth, goodwill to men, from heaven's all-gracious king. The world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. Fair enough. It's peaceful, kind of... You know, bucolic scene. Everyone's still. The angels are singing. It's nice. One of the next verses. And you, beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. There's a recognition that your lives, your lives, my life, is filled with toil. It's filled with weight and a yoke that has been placed upon us. There's a recognition that there is difficulty in life that isn't simply blown away because we've entered into Advent season, because December rolls around and all of a sudden the cares of the world are lifted. This isn't, as much as we want it to be, a Hallmark movie. Things don't work out like that. So we must, therefore, first speak about the need for joy, the need for joy. Why do we need joy? If God is so good, why doesn't he just lavish us with happiness? Luke begins his account of the gospel by talking about two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest and his division happened to be functioning as the priests at that time. And he was to go in to offer incense to the Lord. And so there was a congregation outside and he was to go into the temple and offer incense. And during that, in verse 11 of the first chapter of Luke, we pick up. And while he went in to burn incense, in verse 11 it says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. 
and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is not just an ordinary birth. Certainly you can understand why it was a time of great joy. This announcement was of great joy to Zechariah. His wife, Elizabeth, has already been marked out as barren. They have tried long to have children and have not. Many of you understand the struggles of trying to have kids and the difficulty and despair that can come when you cannot conceive and have children. Added to the personal difficulty of that is the social difficulty back then. We understand why. We understand what that's from. But for the people of the first century, this was a sign almost of God's curse being upon you, the fact that they were given a child would have been tremendous joy to both Zechariah and Elizabeth. But it wasn't just for them. Notice, it wasn't just for them. You will have joy and gladness, he says in verse 14, and many will rejoice at his birth. The birth of John will not just be met by happiness from mom and dad, but many will rejoice. And why? He doesn't actually get to why. He says, for he will be great before the Lord. But why will he be great before the Lord? In verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. There is a reason why Zechariah is where he is. The people had been exiled. Even at the beginning of this passage, all the way back up in verse 5, we have a hint of the difficulty that's going on in Judea at the time. Luke begins this by saying in verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. He doesn't say Herod, king of the Jews. Judea was just the area that they lived in. He was an appointed king, appointed by Caesar. He wasn't given by God. He wasn't an anointed Messiah. He, he wasn't the one who was to come. He wasn't the rightful king, but he was a king imposed by a foreign power. They had been exiled, the people did, because they were sinful, because they had transgressed the law of God so many times that even God, who is infinite in mercy, ran a ground of mercy for them. The elders were reading from the book of Amos this week. We read of the great judgment that was going to fall in the northern kingdom. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, but not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but the hearing of the words of the Lord. The Lord God was going to send them into exile, but that didn't just mean that they were leaving God. It also meant that God was leaving them. When you read the first opening chapters of the book of Ezekiel, you have this wonderful, difficult, beautiful and weird picture of this mobile throne that has angels under it and around it and creatures below it and wheels that are turning although it floats in the sky. It's very odd. But everything about that announces that God is leaving. His presence and his location where he resides, where he manifests himself is no longer in Jerusalem. Ezekiel starts us by saying, I was in exile. I was in Babylon 
And I saw the throne of God, not in Jerusalem. God has left his people. Zechariah is awaiting the return of the people to God from their sin and God to the people. Why is there an announcement of great joy? Because that's going to happen again. You see, the problem with joy is that joy we think is something that we can have in and of ourselves or we can have with the things that are given to us by the outside world. But that's not the case. Joy, true, abiding, and lasting joy only comes by knowing and being known by God, by being in his presence. Just as he is life, he is also joy. And when he removes his presence from us, when he takes his presence away, as he does, because he cannot stand sin, there will always be a need for joy. There will always be a gaping hole of joy in your life. And you can fill that up with the things of the world. Let's make no doubt about it. Toys and families, food, those things can make you joyful. But those things never last your family members will die. You will be bereft and you yourself one day will die. The book of Ecclesiastes, which we just got done reading in our community groups, speaks on this. In Ecclesiastes 2, 14 through 17, Solomon or Koheleth, the the preacher, is looking back on his life and he has been given so much. He is wise and he is intelligent and he is powerful and he is rich. And this is what he says almost As an initial statement in the book, in in chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, he says, The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, This is also a vanity. For of the wise... As of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is a vanity and a striving after the wind. Yeah, you, you can, he says, turn and look for happiness and joy in all of these things of the world and you can try to fetch them. But even though all of those things will rot and rust because you cannot stop entropy, it will always come for you. All of your shiny new toys will rot one day. They will be dragged into the dredges of a trash can. Your friends and your family will leave you. They will hurt you. They will sin against you. And you will have a split in your relationship or they will die. One day you yourself will die. It will all go away. There is always going to be despair in this life. This is a mark of sin. The mark of true joy is being with God. This is what we see at the end. Remember at the end of the book of Revelation, there's no tears. There's only happy, praising God, joyful praising of God forever. Why? Because God is in the midst of his people. There's no need for a sun because the light of God shines on his people. And as God's light shines on his people, there is joy. But where is hell? Hell is where God is not. See, this is part of what we talked about two weeks ago. In prophecy, we said the deliverance of the people in Hezekiah's day 
in Amos's day, or excuse me, in, in Isaiah's day, the deliverance of the nation at that time was sort of a foretaste. It, it was a picture of the total deliverance that God would bring in Christ. So the exile is also but a picture, just a picture of what it means for you to be in hell. It is the removal of God's presence from you. It is the removal of joy and happiness. That is why in hell there is nothing but despair because there is no God there. We need joy now because we have sin now. Our frustrations are present because we are not fully with God yet. Whether we are Christian or not, we have frustrations because God has not manifested himself to us fully yet. So then secondly, what is our cause for joy? What is our cause for joy? What is the reason for joy for us It is not just the birth of John, but even in the birth of John, John himself points to the real cause for joy, and that is the birth and the coming of Jesus Christ. We read then in verses 26 through 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive, and in your womb you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom There will be no end. What is the cause of this joy? The cause of the joy is not the fact that Mary is hailed as one full of grace. This is where Catholics get the hail Mary full of grace. This isn't Mary being full of grace, but Mary finding favor in the sight of God, finding favor like Abraham and like Noah had before her, that God's unmerited blessings were going to fall on her, specifically in the fact that she was picked out to bear the Son of God. And the great joy that comes from this is the picture just like we've talked about, that there was a king over Judea who was not the king of the Jews. Now there comes the king of the Jews. The kingdom of God will be restored. God will be with his people and his people will be with God. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Notice verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. This is not, by the way, the full-throated affirmation of Jesus' divinity that you get in the book of John. But it is really close. It is not a succession. It isn't David's house being continued forever. It is the fact that Jesus will sit on the throne forever. He is never to die. He is never to perish. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That means both temporally, chronologically, to the end of the world, he will be there, but it also means geographically. There will be no kingdom but this kingdom. There will be no king but this king. He will be the Lord of lords, and he will be the king of kings. And of this There is great rejoicing because now the kingdom of God is coming near. This is good news. 
This is the end of oppression. This is the end of frustration. This is the end of all sin. When God makes his home with his people, it is the coming of Christ that gives us cause for joy because we know that with the coming of Christ, God has come near for us. This is John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the same word that is used to talk about God's tabernacle in the Old Testament. He literally came as as he was in the tabernacle. He manifested his presence in the tabernacle. So Christ has come, the word has come, and has manifested himself in Jesus Christ. God is now with his people. He is Emmanuel. And therefore, we have reason to rejoice because it is through this Son, this Christ, that we are now brought close to God and God is brought close to us. This is nothing less than the gospel. The thing that separates you from God, the thing that has initially caused God to pull back from people and to thrust people out of his presence as he did in the garden has now come to an end because Christ has taken our sin and he has taken the punishment that God righteously needs to pour out upon it on himself so that you don't have to. Because while you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So no more is there a cause of enmity between God and us, but God can now draw near to us. And we can know, we can know the joy of God, the joy of the Lord. This is a cause for joy. It is only through Christ. It is only in the gospel. There's no way to read through the work of Scripture and to think that there is some other way to capture the joy of God. God's presence is joy. To be connected and to know God and to experience him is to know and experience joy when it's done through salvation and when it's done in his kingdom. There is no other kingdom. There is no other way to enter the kingdom but through Jesus Christ alone. There is no other king but Jesus Christ alone. So the coming of that king is a cause for joy given, given a correct response to that joy. The response of joy. How are we then to respond? What is the response of joy? What is her response? What's Mary's response? She asks for clarification and the clarification that comes from the angel, I have no doubt, does little to actually clarify what exactly the angel means. And so Mary's response in verse 38 is so perfect. Behold, she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. That is just a flat-out resignation from Mary. She says, okay, let it be done. There's no fighting. There's no ifs. There's no provision. She's not saying, listen, I will do this, but you got to help me out. Let's meet halfway. Just a a resignation to God. I will do this. I am your servant. Let it be done to me. But it's not just a response of faith, although it is a response of faith. It's a response of humble faith. It is a humble faith. This presence of humility goes all the way through the Magnificat this beautiful prayer and praise of Mary to God. Listen to how she 
pictures herself not only as humble, but how God works with the humble versus his work with the the rich or his work against the prideful. Listen to how she praises God. And, And more than that, if you have the chance, reflect upon the Magnificat and Psalm 145 that we all read this morning. The two fit very well together. This is what Mary says. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Listen to how Mary talks about her being humbled. She says, that she will be called blessed in verse 48. She talks about the fact that she is exalted in verse 52. The fact that in verse 53, God fills her. He has filled them, the hungry, with good things. That's what happens to those who are humble. When you are humble before God, you respond to this joy because you know that you cannot gain this joy through anything else. It is you who have caused the problem. It is God who has provided the solution. It is you who have done what is wrong. It is God who has done what is right. It is you who are in need, and it is God himself who provides the fulfillment of it. You are, in the most sincere sense of the word, nothing but a beggar. Because of that, you are humble if you rightly respond to this. Those who are humble are exalted. They're blessed. They're filled For God is magnified. He is magnificent. He is a savior to his people. He is strong in verse 51, mighty in verse 49. He provides for his people in verse 53. He is a helper to them in verse 54. He is more than that. He is merciful to them. But he destroys those who are pride, who are proud. He scatters them. He removes the source of their pride in verse 52. Their thrones are taken away. They have no more reason to be proud. And he leaves them unsatisfied in everything they put their hand to. They will come and they will ask for food and God will turn them away. The response to joy is one of humble faith. To know the joy of God is to be humble because you can only accept it by begging him for it. You cannot work for it. You cannot earn it. It is not something that comes to you. It is, in this Christmas season, nothing but a pure and unadulterated gift from God. Therefore, respond with faith and respond with humility. There are great joys in this season. We have times to celebrate with our family. We get to give gifts. I love gifts. To receive them and to give them. To, to receive them and to give them. I love gifts. I love good food. 
I love the fact that there's times built into this of rest. But let's be clear, these are all, these are all fickle joys. And the author of Ecclesiastes, we would do right to agree with him that these things are nothing but vapors. They fade as quickly as they come. As soon as you think you have a hold of these joys, that this is something that will make you happy, I can hold this in my hand, I've gotten the thing that I want, it is broken the next day. Friends, you you can chase such pleasures if you want. You can pursue them with all of your life. Everything that the world has to offer, every good thing, and there are good things here that the world has to offer. But your joy will be nothing more than the carrot before the donkey, always chased, never tasted. God has indeed let sin take its full measure, if for no other reason than to show the despair of men's efforts and toil. But now, in the right time, he has sent his Son to the world that his joy might come. Jesus himself said, I've said these things, I've told you these things, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. The joy that comes from Christ comes from bringing people to God and God to people, from bridging the gap that was unbridgeable by us. That through the knowledge and experience of God in Christ, the joy of God, the great unending, overflowing joy that the Trinity has realized since before the very foundation of the world might also be for you and might be tasted by you. That is the gift of Christmas. That is why we celebrate joy now. This is indeed the song of the angels. There is great joy, for there is good news. For those who respond to Christ in faith, for through Christ we can enter into the peace of the Lord. Friends, today, if you feel as though you are one of those who are beneath, beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow, we would do well to finish the verse. Look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. O rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. Their song is the gospel of God, that joy is found in Christ. Let us pray. Father, you are indeed good to us. Even in allowing sin to flourish, Father, you have given us a picture of what evil, evil people we are. You have provided us a way of understanding our humble circumstances so that when you lavish good things upon us, we might not miss them. Let us not miss the best thing that you have lavished upon us this season. You have given us Christ, our Lord. You have given us redemption. You have given us yourself. You have come near to us that we might be drawn near to you and know and experience joy. We pray, Father, that all who are in here might know you and know your joy completely and fully, filled with a joy that is inexpressible regardless of the circumstances of the world, regardless of friends turning their backs on us, of death and destruction and 
what might press others toward despair, knowing, Father, that you have done all things good in Christ Jesus and that there is nothing for us to fear. I pray that all might know this and exalt you in joy. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.